0: podcast is from the Kentucky Women Writers' Conference, made possible by the University of Kentucky in Lexington.
1: It's really a wonderful, great pleasure to be here today to welcome Jill McCorkle to the Kentucky Women Writers' Conference. I'm going to introduce Jill in just a second, but um, I wanted to tell you that after her reading, she's going to read for a while, and after her reading, she and I will have an informal conversation, and at some point in that conversation, um, I will invite the audience to be part of our conversation, to join us. Um, So if you have a question for Jill, please know that this opportunity is coming, and please um, feel more than welcome. Um, We'd be delighted to have questions from you at that time. And then afterwards, there will be a book signing with Jill, too. For many of you I know, Jill McCorkle needs no introduction at all. In what surely must have been a history-making moment in publishing, her first two novels, both of them critically acclaimed, were published on the very same day when she was only 25 years old. Jill has been writing ever since, bringing to life a remarkably diverse array of characters and creating entire communities in her work. In story, after novel, after story, Jill explores the rich inner lives of teenagers, of octogenarians, and of everybody in between. Her insights into families, relationships, and into what it means to be human are real and penetrating, which may explain why so many readers gravitate to her books. While Jill doesn't shy away from the difficult things that happen in the lives of her characters, there is also always humor. More often than not, it's laugh-out-loud humor. And there's always a sense that beneath what might seem like ordinary, everyday experiences lie, in fact, the extraordinary moments that give meaning to her characters' lives and to our own. Jill McCorkle is the author of six novels and four collections of short stories. She is critically acclaimed in both genres, as well as in the essay. Her stories have been widely published and widely anthologized, with several included in the Best American Short Stories and the Best Stories of the South. Five of her books have been named New York Times Notable Books, and she has received the New England Booksellers Award, the John Dos Passos Prize for Excellence in Literature, and the North Carolina Award for Literature. She is a teacher as well as a writer, and students have benefited from her wisdom at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, Tufts, Brandeis, Harvard, and in the MFA program at North Carolina State University, where she currently teaches Jill lives with her husband in Hillsborough, North Carolina. The accolades for Jill McCorkle's work are many. She is praised for her finely drawn characters, her sharp, incisive humor, and her insight. But a reviewer for the New York Times, writing about her most recent novel, Life After Life, may have put it best, saying Jill McCorkle is, quote, a poet of the everyday, that she explores the simple, often luminous moments on this side of the great divide. We are so very fortunate to be able to hear her read from her work this morning. Please join me in welcoming Jill McCorkle. Thank you, Kim.
0: It's such an honor to be here and a great honor to meet someone I've admired on the page for so long. So, um, good morning. and and. When I saw I was nine o 'clock i 'm like, "Oh, you know who 's <laughs> going to be there so thank you um, what What a wonderful sight I thought i would I would read a little from my most recent novel, and i 'll keep it short so we can get to our conversation. But this is a novel that really felt like a patchwork quilt of all different voices, and I thought I would just tell you briefly. Um, what's what's going on here. One of the main characters in the novel is a hospice volunteer by the name of Joanna. And uh, after many bad decisions and wrong turns in life, uh, she finds herself fed up with it all. And so cold, snowy night in New Hampshire, uh, she decides she's had enough. She's figured it out. She'll take this many pills, drink this much liquor, fall into a defunct hot tub, making it look like an accident so nobody feels guilty. What she doesn't know is the man right down the road will let his giant Newfoundland out to pee at the exact same time. And being the good water dog she is, she comes and plucks her from the hot tub, <laughs> saves her life. Um, what, what Joanna learns soon after is that the owner of the dog is dying. And can't believe that someone would so carelessly try to throw out what he's holding on to. So they they make a deal that he will help her dust herself off and educate herself in a way to give something back. So she trains as a volunteer with all these rules. He gives her all these rules. She has to keep a notebook with notes on every life she encounters. So everyone she sits with. So the novel is put together with passages from her notebook followed immediately by just a brief glimpse into the point of view of the person leaving. And some of these people are involved in the present day plots. Others just come and go as people she has met and is attempting to sort of keep the memory alive. Um, Some of the people that... You meet a lot of people in the present where she works at Pine Haven Retirement Center. Um, There's a man faking dementia to avoid life with his son. There's a retired third grade teacher who's um, slipping into dementia and kind of believes we're all eight years old in the heart. She views the whole world in the microcosm of a third grade classroom. Um, there's a the little girl living next door enduring her parents' hideous marriage and finding friendship and escape with her 80 and 90 something best friends next door um, and several others but I 'm going to give you a brief sampling of two and the first is a woman named Rachel Silverman. might have stolen your name. I have a former student in the in the audience <laughs> with that name, not not the Rachel. But um, so, Rachel's story is that after years of, uh, well, she lived her whole life in New England, but she has retired here in the South because it's the hometown of a long ago lover no one ever knew about, and that's all she knew of the South were his stories, and she has decided to spend the the end of her life here. So, a little bit of Rachel. Rachel Silverman is in the South. God only knows what she was thinking, and yet she thought it, and she chose it, and now she's here in the middle of nowhere, the land of quilts and doilies. Yes, ma'am, and no, sir. She's here, as the big X on the map in the front hall tells her. She is here, Pine Haven Estates, Retirement Village and Assisted Living, Fulton, North Carolina, an hour from the ocean and minutes from Interstate 95, just 700 miles from where she spent her whole life in Massachusetts. She is here, her last adventure. She's come to see the hometown of her one great love, a man who was not her husband and who likely never would have been. She had three glorious months with him in the summer of 1970, which was the year she turned 39. Imagine turning 39 at a time when people still made reference to Jack Benny and found humor in a person never admitting he had turned 40. Now you'd be hard-pressed to find a young person who had ever even heard of Jack Benny and now 39 sounds like someone barely living, still wet behind the ears their muscles capable of doing all kinds of things they take for granted. They met during one wonderful summer on the Cape, both there alone, and then after that there were occasional afternoons and odd Saturday mornings, some stretches of time more generous in giving than others, until the winter of 1976 when he was out of her life forever. His name was Joe, A simple, easy name for a seemingly easy man, but he was far more complex than what appeared on the surface, and he made Rachel's life complex for a very long time, the difficulties far outnumbering the comfort, and yet still she chose to continue. Several times he even said, So just stop, just end it, but she never did. Now life is simple. She has come seeking his south, the place of his boyhood, the setting of all those stories he told her when they burrowed into the far back booth of a Duxbury deli or some small motel down on the Cape. That life was complicated and fraught. That life left her heart pounding and her sleep fitful, so afraid she might be caught, afraid she might speak his name in the darkness of the bed where where her husband of so many years lay. That life involved dark winter days and snow shovels and raw hands and dry skin and it involved those secret meetings, brandy-laced and delicious, the smell of wet wool and diesel fumes when standing and waiting for the train, suddenly intoxicating, anticipation and deceit, love-making and lies cases and stuffed files and somewhere in there a uterus that needed to be pulled out and tossed away and the years of debating about adopting or not came and went one day an obsession and the next a distant memory just before Rachel migrated south she had a taxi drive her back to that old apartment and she stood on the icy sidewalk staring up at the library window they had not lived there in years, and she felt a wave of time sickness to see it. Years of lost hope seeped into the coal red brick. She could almost hear their voices, her husband's, her own, the heavy black wall phone in the kitchen, the radio on top of the refrigerator always turned to the public station, rattles in the windows and rainbows cast by the warped, bubbled glass of the panes. When she got back into the cab, she felt she was saying goodbye to something living and breathing, a life that would continue to exist, one that she could reach back and touch if brave enough to do so. But now life is simple. Now life is about coffee in the morning. Life is about meals and books and memories and the occasional silly television show she doesn't enjoy that much and yet finds herself drawn to all the same. She does not give a damn about who can dance and who can't and she doesn't recognize a soul they say as a celebrity except of course Cloris Leachman whom Rachel saw in South Pacific on Broadway in 1954. Um, And then I'm going to really switch gears and give you a sampling. Uh, My apologies if any of you were um, at at a reading a couple of nights ago. Um, But this is a retired, also a retired teacher from South Carolina. She's very much in the uh, um, independent part of this facility. She has her own little cottage, drives her own car. And um, she tells people that she threw a dart at a map to see where to go. What she doesn't tell is this is the fifth dart she threw. <laughs> um, and what else? Her given name was not Toby, but her last name's Tyler, and she legally changed her name to Toby Tyler because she always wanted to run away and join the circus. Um, so, this is just a little sampling of what I think of as Toby's rant. Um, to to explain why she was asked to leave her job in the first place. I was a good teacher for 40 years, and everything was normal. Then things started getting strange. Next thing I knew, the children were coming in with names like Bandana and Eurasia and Montpelier. (laughs) And I said, those are things and places, children, and you are people. What on earth is going on? And there were names I couldn't even pronounce and I can guarantee you that you don't readily go calling names you can't say. I'm looking for the Johns and Bills and Toms and they just weren't there anymore. I'm a human, a woman, I was an English teacher and a bit of an amateur writer myself but I'll tell you things went so far off course I just didn't even know where I was anymore. I think it was the beginning of the end, too. What once was generous compassion for high school students with all their angst and crap going on turned into purity, agitation, and fury. I didn't get frustrated by who I am. I got frustrated by what they were reading and wanting to write about. I said, you're too smart for all this mess. Dwarves and wizards and gnomes and vampires, (laughs) big blue aliens with tails like monkeys. I said, what I wouldn't give for a good old-fashioned story about somebody losing his or her virginity or getting an abortion? (laughs) Grandma died, and for the first time, I knew I was a mortal. Or what about the one where the boy doesn't want to kill a deer, but granddaddy makes him so he can be a man? I was wanting to write something myself, and it was dying to get out of my head but couldn't find the door. It was all so plugged up with all that malarkey. I had worked so hard, and all I was longing for was some whining little boy who didn't want to kill a deer. I was craving one, in fact. Would have loved him and given him an instant, eh? And where did all the orphans go? Jane and Oliver and Pip? It's an honorable and very dramatic position. And the girl who's upset to have a period? Where did she go? Or the one all torn up about losing her virginity? Where did she go? If they're still out there, they're keeping a low profile and hiding from all those getting boobs for Christmas and graduation and making themselves up to look 30. I wanted dead deers and dead grandparents. I wanted anything other than a zombie or a shape-shifting demon wolf coyote. What am I to do with a bunch of aliens at Armageddon? Some of them said about their papers, I meant to be vague like that might excuse something that didn't make a goddamn bit of sense or the one who said i just didn't get what he was doing because it's so brilliant i took my work seriously and where did it get me there i was asking for a little reality and who wouldn't be after columbine what teacher on the planet after virginia tech didn't study her classroom windows and doors and the desk arrangements and hatched some plan for how she would protect all those young bodies, even the ones that got on her last damn nerve. And then this one boy, meaning to push my button, this one boy named something like Montreal Fedora, (laughs) offered up some literary criticism on the death of Julius Caesar. He said, and I quote, them dudes was mean as shit, weren't they? (laughs) And I said, those dudes were mean as shit. That is what I got in trouble for. Somebody in there ran home and tattled, not about what was being discussed in the class, but what I had said. Miss Tyler, come to the office, please. Miss Tyler, please come to the office. This had happened many times. I made a notch on my desk, in fact, every time it happened, and one whole side looked like a fine-tooth comb. My principal was about 14 and had never read Shakespeare. How do I know? I asked him one day. And in that moment when I needed him on my side, I almost wish I had not done that. Or that I had been a teacher who did not argue against prayer in my class, which I had done for years, or did not allow hats. But what did I care if they wore hats? Some of them might have been sporting bad haircuts they were ashamed of or keeping their lice locked in. What did I care? (laughs) I figured we'd have plenty of battles to fight, and I needed to choose the most important. I mean, these are humans growing up and witnessing the uterus as a competitive sporting arena. And who would have ever thought that? Irresponsible birth control will get you a television show and a magazine cover. Octo, sexto, moron. I said to my principal, the boy king, I asked him, (laughs) if I retire like you say I have to, who will teach these children? Who will guard the gate? Who can promise me they'll tell the boys to keep their trousers zipped and tell the girls not to go promising things they do not intend to deliver? Who will teach birth control? Who will teach the value of literature? I said, who will tell them nobody gives a damn about how dwarves and trolls have sex? (laughs) If they had, the Brothers Grimm would have figured it out and already done it. They had every opportunity. What I wouldn't have given for just one stained soul. Just one good story about one stained soul. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. That was marvelous. Um, we're going to turn it to a uh, conversation, I guess. Okay.
0: Should, should we s- <coughs> I'm fine. I, I feel bad. People in the back may not be able, able to see. What do you think? Standing is fine. I think yeah, that'd be good. I, I yeah. think so, because otherwise, nobody will see us. That's right. Here, why
1: don't you take
0: if, this if one? I'm, if you're fine with that. I'm totally fine Okay. With
1: yeah, my technical expertise <laughs> oh, good, yeah. well, that was just is this, is this on? <laughs> Well that was wonderful. Um, and I wanted to start I mean I have so many um, questions to start the conversation but given the reading that you just did, um, I wanted to start with with a question about voice. Um, Reading your short stories and your novels, I mean, you have such a wonderful facility with voice. You move so easily into different voices, and you you read from two very different kinds of voices in this uh, piece that you did for us today. And that's true um, through all your stories. I, I, in *Tending Virginia*, the, the voices move through different characters to give uh, glimpses of different glimpses of the story. And of course, you know, in *Life After Life*, the same thing happens. So I'm just curious how the story begins for you, and whether you start with the voice or the voice comes to you later.
0: I almost always start with with that voice, and and if I don't feel I have the voice in my head. A lot of my pre-writing time is is spent uh, doing exercises that I hope will lead me to that voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have, I have great admiration for actors, particularly those doing theater. And they're just out there alone with all these words to deliver and a character to project. And I was the person who would get out there, forget absolutely everything, get a bad case of hives. And um, and then I realized early in life that as a writer, you're doing that same thing. You just get to be in a room all by yourself while you're doing it. And you're not bound by your age or your gender or anything. And, and so I think for me as a writer that... That stretch to find the voices of people who are um, quite often quite different from who I am has that's the real challenge and and excitement of it for me. I think Mm -hmm.
1: when you were writing um, Life After Life, just to focus in on that because that's what you just read from. I mean, there are so many different voices and um, so many different. Uh, styles of telling the story. There are the, the stories of the individuals. There's Joanna's diary or that she keeps about the, the last hours of each person. And then there are the kind of stream of consciousness pieces from those individuals. Um, and I wondered if you started with, with which voice you started with and, and how the structure of that book came to be. It's very complex and it works so beautifully.
0: Well, th- thank you. And that was the big challenge. I spent years collecting scraps of these lives. I knew I wanted to write a novel about memory and how at the end that is who we are and, and it is how we're remembered by others. And so I spent years collecting stories and anecdotes, not even sure who who they went with. And I had done the whole present section without the notebook. Mm-hmm. I had made reference to the notebook. Uh, but I knew something, something was really missing from the novel. It felt very superficial. And I didn't know how to put all these pieces together, either. And so it was actually in the process of trying to put it together um, that it occurred to me to use that notebook as a kind of mortar to just put all these bricks. Together, and so the very last idea of the structure was that extra dimension of the voices of the people dying oh, and I felt really afraid to do it you know it just mm-hmm. felt like I was maybe walking a little too far out on the limb um, but but I once I got in the rhythm of writing those voices, I just loved them and and in fact wrote a lot more than. Um, needed to be in the novel.
1: There's a wonderful dimension to having those voices. I mean, it's wonderful what Joanna has to say, but then to see it from their own perspective in the sort of last moments and what they're perceiving. I thought it worked beautifully. Thank you. Well, the other question... um, I have several questions, but one of the questions I think you've sort of already answered, sort of in the process of answering this question, and it, it has to do with the process of writing. And a few years ago, I did a little bit of research because I had been talking to a poet who had figured out everything that he did in advance um, and was really shocked to hear that I didn't do that, that I, I sort of started and t- went where it took me. So I did some research, and I, I, I read about a lot of other authors who um what their process was and where they began. And I found that there's this real spectrum between really intuitive writing and really, you know, sort of like Nadine Gordimer would start and not know where she was going, but Gabriel Garcia Marquez would know what was going to happen on page 392. So I think most writers fall along that spectrum somewhere. And I wondered, you know, I think you've alluded to it, but I wonder if you could expand a little on how, how it is that you write and how you see it.
0: Right. I, I think that I also am the more intuitive writer but I, I once heard the writer Sue Miller describe it as knowing that she was going to travel from the east coast to the west but not yet deciding what states to pass through and where to spend the night and and so I think I, I have this vague notion of where I hope I will end up and it, it becomes clearer the longer I'm moving and sometimes I end up there but a lot of times I I don't, mm-hmm. um, but I, I i definitely learn things along the way, and I, I marvel at those people who know exactly where it's ending. I, sometimes I have the ending in mind somewhere in the middle of the work. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Once you get to the middle, yes. then you sort of see yes. see where the ending will be. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. But the other question that I had for you, listening to you read particularly these pieces, but just in general, um, has to do with, with sense of place. And one thing that happened when I was reading over the summer and sort of making making notes about <laughs> things we might talk about today um, is I have this one sentence on a notebook that just says cemeteries. And the reason it says cemeteries is because I had gone back and read Ferris Beach, which I had missed, and I was just noticing that there there was this cemetery there. It seemed very important in the same way that, um, or in similar ways, to so the, the cemetery in um, <clears throat> Life After Life and it's a place of, Intrigue and mystery, and sometimes danger, and lots of things happen there. <clears throat> so, I, I went on to read some more interviews with you, but I would love you to tell the story about, about those two um, the, 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 the connection between those two cemeteries.
0: Oh, oh, sure. Well, it is the same cemetery in my fictional town, and I think I'm someone who was just so deeply moved by. Thornton Wilder's Our Town at a very early age and um, I I love Our Town and I also grew up um, with two different cemeteries that fit into my life. One was a very old cemetery near where my grandmother lived and she was of that generation where she regularly went with an old push mower and mowed my grandfather's grave and she had a rose bush and she was always planning and tending that plot. And so I have many childhood memories of going with her and just sort of roaming about the stones and reading and, you know, riding like I I pretended they were horses, you know, and Mm -hmm. you'd be like mounted on a headstone somewhere. Um, And then there was this great, beautiful, big cemetery um, within biking distance of where I grew up. And uh, I just, you know, from the time I was about eight years old, would, would go there mm-hmm. um, for the same reason, I think, just reading the stones. And yeah. and um, it was just a, a great place to ride your bike, you know, without anybody telling you to stop or what to do. So,
1: I was just so intrigued when I read it and realized that they were indeed the same cemetery and that... In your mind that you had created this entire fictional place Mm -hmm. um is it fulton fulton north carolina that's your fictional place and i find that really um, a wonderful thing to consider and i just um, wanted to ask you first about um, about that sense of place. It sounds like you draw very deeply on your roots. And, and sort of tangential to that, I wanted to ask about the fact that you had left for a while as Rachel, Rachel was a transplant to the right. south, you were a transplant to the north. So all of those things feed into a sense of place in your work, and I wondered if you had thoughts on that.
0: They, they totally do. Um, as a writer, I go back to the same place again and again, and it's... It's my hometown, but not even my hometown, Lumberton, North Carolina, small town in southeastern Carolina. Um, And it's not even what it looks like now. It's what it looked like in about 1963 um, when I was a kid. And in my fiction, I find that I'm always going back to that place. I've taken the liberty of picking my hometown up (laughs) and scooting it about 30 miles closer to the ocean so that my characters can live out my dream and actually live at the ocean and still get to work on time. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's very much based on my hometown. And um, all those years living in New England and my children growing up there, I still, when I sat down to write, I, I was just right back in that same place. Interestingly once i moved back to the south so much of what i loved and and came to just count on in new england i found myself homesick there and so i think that i gave rachel silverman a big dose of um a kind of longing that i had for light and weather and architecture that was foreign to me when i got there but i came to think of as something that um, was a part of my own life. Uh, So it's been interesting. I I think where your children call home, you can't help but feel a a very strong kinship. So though I never took my southern hat off, um, I very much found a a thriving community there. Very inspiring.
1: It is a funny thing when your children grow up calling home a different place than you do. I had that same experience.
0: Yeah. Mm Yeah. Except in reverse. In reverse. You have exactly. southern. <laughs> Isn't that That's funny? exactly right. But you're right. Yeah.
1: Those connections and those attachments are really, they run deep also. They, they really do. So. Um, I wondered. While we're on sort of the structural kinds of things and uh, location kinds of things, I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, you're, you're a writer who started with a novel and then moved to short stories later and has moved very easily and wonderfully back and forth between the two genres in addition to writing essays, but I wanted to ask you um, how you feel about the relationship between stories and novels or how it feels to you in the writing of them. Do you approach them differently or... Um, is, is the genesis the same or what takes you in one direction or another
0: you know the, the, the more I do it over time um, the greater the distance between those two genres in my mind I, I think I've come to believe that the story has a lot more in common with a poem mm-hmm. than a novel and, and so I do work very differently I feel like with a short story um, I have to find that ending before I even think of work, you know, that I'm really working. I mean, I do that intuitive thing where you see what flies onto the page, but you're not fully understanding it. And, um, and with a novel, I just feel like I have a lot more leisure time. So it's, I think, I think by nature, I am a novelist. I did it first. It's what seemed to come easiest. I was the person in workshop where people would say, well, you know, some things are happening here, but it feels like a part of something bigger. And I heard that for years until finally, you know, I had a short story that was about 65 pages. And we decided, you know, oh, I think you're writing a novel. Um, But I always wanted to get back to the story. I, I greatly admired the form. I read a lot of poetry. I, I think my earliest aspirations were to be a poet. And I, I always loved that Faulkner quote, you know, where he said something like, we all want to be poets, and then we fail, so we write stories. And then we fail, so we write novels. <laughs> but um, but I, I I do love um, what's forced in in those attempts. I don't really come out with poems that I would do anything with except wrap them into a paragraph. But when I when I make myself do that exercise of attempting to write a poem, I'm so focused on language and rhythm and choosing just the right word that if I've gotten all sort of fat and flabby over here in the novel, it, it's a great way to sort of pull it all in shape. So I feel much more disciplined when I'm working on <laughs> short stories. Um, and And I love them more and more I, I still I never feel as confident in a story as I do a novel
1: it, It's an amazingly deceptive form. you know you think yes. shorter would be easier, but it's really really not well, I wanted to ask you um, you've talked in different interviews that I've read about um, you know the need to and I think it's true for novelists to and writers of all kinds to have this sort of set aside space and time and to be reflective and to be contemplative and just to be quiet and um you're, you're a professor, you're a parent, you've raised children, and you're a writer. And those are really three full-time jobs, in my opinion. And so I wanted to ask you, um, at times in your life, how you have found a balance um, for juggling all of those things. Yeah.
0: And I would bet for a lot of people in this room, that's that's the million-dollar mm-hmm. question. <laughs> and I, I think it's always a work in progress, that, that juggling act. Um and that—that that is what it feels like. I—I I think for me, the—the um, the early lesson learned, and—and and it came pretty fast when my, when my daughter was born, um, over 26 years ago. And I was a very disciplined writer, um, and had in mind all the things I needed, you know, sit here, wear this, do. And then my daughter was born, and I thought, oh, my God. Well, <laughs> I'm never going to do this again unless I change my all my habits. And, and I became so portable at that time. And after years of having come away from Longhand and done all my work at the keyboard, I found um, it was kind of thrilling that I could just have a pen and a piece of paper and be anywhere working on my work. And so I found things like the carpool line and uh, the Little League games and, and all these parts of my everyday life. I suddenly realized I could give myself credit because I was still thinking about my characters. And, um, I, I, you know, I learned that when your kids are really little, if you say... Um, on a beautiful day, you know I'm going to go in here in this room because I really want to be by myself. I want to <laughs> think my thoughts. I want to write down my thoughts. I want to read my thoughts and think a little bit more about my thoughts. Um, you you would not be very popular in your household. Uh, but I learned pretty quickly that if what you say is I'm going to the grocery store to buy all your favorite foods for your lunch <laughs> bag this week and I'm going to get dinner, they don't even miss you. You know, it's like nobody complains. You're gone. And I have written so many scenes while parked out at Super Stop and Shop or Food Lion. You know, just, um, I've done a lot of writing that way. And and, uh, you get home and they didn't even know you were gone, you know, Um, though you always have this great story about, oh my God, it was so busy, and I had to wait in line, and they had to do a (laughs) price check. Um, (laughs) But um, I don't know, you know, and I also wanted my children to have respect for that quiet time, and I also really wanted them to learn to have their own kind of quiet time, and not to be dependent on something else going on at all times to entertain. But but I still find myself juggling. I mean, you know, just when I got old enough in life that I thought, well, you know, I just don't care what my mother thinks about me anymore. Um, <laughs> my mo- not entirely true, but but for my whole career, if anybody mentioned my books, my mother would say, well, are you sure you want to read her? Because you will never find her books in the Christian bookstore. <laughs> And she has been apologizing for me for 30 years, and and I was telling somebody one day when you just when you get old enough that it doesn't bother you what your mother says about your work. You've got these children, you know, going through, like uh, seeing what they can dig up. But um, so so it's just a constant. It it keeps you on your toes, I think, and and I, um, that's it's it's a work in progress I just have become um totally portable and I just always have notebooks and I always have feel like I have some little something in my pocket I'm working on at all times Mm -hmm. it's
1: that's wonderful thank you thank you well I think we just have a few minutes left um, and so I wanted to take this opportunity to I have more questions if no one else does but I hope that you will and someone does already in the back
0: Yes. Um, Exercise is about finding the voice. Um, if I have a vague idea of who this person is, the real understanding is put this person in a truly difficult situation and then so you take it to the next step. So how how is this person reacting? And sometimes in those earliest creations, I mean, I'll admit, you know, I'm thinking hmm, she's a lot like Aunt so-and-so, you know. And and so then, you know, maybe when you're getting a character off the ground, I'm thinking, and what would she do if she was, you know, standing in the checkout line and and some stranger came up and slapped her in the face? What would she say? What would she do in that moment? And and you just nail down these itty-bitty things. Or I tell my students if they know what a character loves more than anything else on earth, this is what you'd give it all up for or that one thing that stands to threaten their stability, what's the secret, what's the weakness, Um, and just spend time thinking, then I find that that kind of knowledge about a character seems to feed everything that comes out of their mouths afterwards. Other questions? um... ordering the the patches it it really um... as i was saying came down to using that that diary to put them together but i also knew that um... part of my challenge as a writer was determining the the little discovery that each of the people in the present would make along the way and some some discoveries are bigger than others, and so then at the end, it was it did come down to um, sort of chronicling the events that lead to the very ending. And I don't want to give away a spoiler alert. I I have an ending that many people um, were upset with me and like you can't end it this way, <laughs> um, but I did because I think life often leaves us with a lot of unanswered. Questions And I think at the end of the day, I'm mostly interested in the most realistic depiction of what we know and don't know, um, and I like to come back in other works and pick up loose threads of what was unanswered, which I hope to do with, with this one. Well, a lot of the voices, it, a lot of the voices, it is rhythm and tone, but they're kind of hung on a clothesline of the present action of what's happening, and so that to me, once I figured out the order of actual events in the present time, then it was easier to hang things on it. I I draw my novels and stories all the time. I love office products. And I love to go get big poster board and Sharpies and draw it. And uh, it makes sense when I see it that way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes? This is a little trivial, but I've been wanting to ask you this question ever since I read the first review of Life After Life,
0: which came along with the review of Pete Atkinson's Life After Life.
1: And my question is, how bummed out were you (laughs) that they both came out the same
0: I was absolutely devastated. Um, I had had this title in my mind for three years. I had Googled. I knew that there was only a nonfiction book about near-death experiences. And then all of a sudden, it's in Publishers Weekly. And that's the first I learned. And by then, the publishers were both up and running the books were scheduled to come out a week apart. And what's interesting is like flashback, like a year and a half prior to that, I had thought my novel was coming out in the fall. And then the publisher said, no, because of the the presidential election, we're gonna push you to the spring because we're afraid you'll get lost in the fall. And I had one of those moments where I said, no, I just know somebody's writing my book. You can't do this. I even dug out the emails I sent oh, saying, God. "I know somebody else is doing this idea, and if I ever feel that way again, i 'm going to buy many lottery tickets
1: <laughs> but um,
0: But I was more concerned about the sort of voices of the dead, you know or people dying, but it was the title and and here 's what I 'll say. Kate Atkinson is a wonderful writer and she was on the bestseller list everywhere and I keep thinking, surely a lot of people bought me by mistake. <laughs> and when they did the indie picks, mm-hmm. they they picked both of us. And so whatever kind bookseller out there, if I was life after life number two, whatever kind bookseller who said, Oh, let's just call it a draw, well I am I am forever indebted to that person. <laughs> So it it turned out okay, but but it it was a shock. I mean it really sort of um you know but what yeah. can you do? You roll with it and uh you know.
1: What a strange coincidence yes. though to have that happen. Yes. Uh, yes.
0: the question is where did these voices come from? Basically, it's, it's a little bit of combing what my experience and what I've known and voices I've heard growing up. Um, I've, I've always I would say been fortunate enough that my whole life I've had a lot of older relatives or people very important in my life so I feel like like the little girl Abby that I've been in and out of these places my whole life. Um, during the writing of the novel my my mother who now has Alzheimer's uh, moved into such a place so now yes I visit all the time Um, I read all the books that hospice volunteers are given to read during the training I've always thought it would be an area of volunteer work that I would love to do I have not done it but, but I did read a lot of the material and um I don't know, you know, um, I, I started keeping notes while visiting my mom, because, as many of you may know, if you have someone and you're in and out of these places, especially when they move to the nursing wing, the visiting drops considerably. Um, but you can walk in and within you know two minutes, see 20 things that will depress you and break your heart. But I can promise you, if you stay, there will be some humor and there will be some joy. And so I made, uh, I just vowed from the very beginning that I could not leave those visits until I had filled up the other hand, you know, um, something funny. And, and, you know, it's both funny and sad. I mean, two weeks ago I said to my mother, do you know who I am? Of course I do. Well, what's my name? She said, Mothball. (laughs) Okay, so you know it's kind of hard not to let. And and then in in her in her personality, I said, "Oh my, I hope not, and I hope I don't smell like one." She said, "Fine then, we'll just call you a cotton ball," and uh, you know, and, and and it's just you can tell from the way she says it, you know, that she thought I was better than a moth, uh, you know, mothball. So, I, I mean, it's just this constant translation of the language and I've always been fascinated by memory especially in someone slipping towards the other side and wondering what's real, what's not, what's influenced by dream or things they overhear and those are the kinds of questions we'll never really know the answer you know so it's this constant uh, working of faith and coming to a place where you determine what you think might be true and not.
1: Well, I so hate to bring this to an end because it's been absolutely wonderful, but we're out of time. So would you please join me in thanking Jill for such a wonderful... Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: This has been a presentation of the Kentucky Women Writers Conference and the University of Kentucky. We would like to thank LexArts, the Kentucky Foundation for Women, and the Carnegie Center for Literacy and Learning for supporting these endeavors. For more information, please visit KentuckyWomenWriters.org.